This episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV with a special offer for you. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout for 30% off all plans. Getting internet access from low-Earth orbit satellites has great promise for addressing the digital divide, supporting disaster response, and creating new opportunities for communication. If you're curious about how these systems work as well as the technological and policy implications, download the free white paper, Perspectives on Low-Earth Orbit Satellite Systems for Internet Access by the Internet Society. Just go to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. That's internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. We've all heard the expression, read the effing manual. It's good advice because you can often get your question answered by documentation that's been expressly written to tell you how and why this product or process or service exists. It's not always, of course, some docs are better than others, but good or bad, that documentation doesn't just appear out of nowhere. A person or team of people have to write it. On today's Heavy Networking, we get inside the process of technical writing and product documentation from a person deep in the trenches of creating docs. We also talk about why writing as a skill might be worth cultivating, even if you aren't responsible for creating the effing manual. Our guest is Pete Lumbus. He is Principal Documentation Engineer at Upbound. Uh, Pete, welcome back to Heavy Networking. What does a documentation engineer do? What are your deliverables? Thanks for having me again, y'all. So documentation engineering um, or documentation writing, technical writing, whatever you want to call it, is a huge, um, broad umbrella of roles. So it can start as something like copy editing, what comes out of engineering. So there's very little kind of creativity or engineering work to kind of all the way on the other side where I live, which is here's our product. And you're like, what do I do with it? And you're like, I don't, that's your job. Uh, go, go figure it out, write it down, figure out what's important, um, figure out how they should be doing it, how to troubleshoot it, how to structure that information and deliver it to customers. You know, and I think part of that is also, you know, related to where do you sit in an organization? What does your company do? Are you internally focused? Are you externally focused? Um, so me specifically, you know, I work for a software vendor. We are producing software for customers and have an, um, an associated open source offering. So I actually work in both communities, both being kind of a one-man army for our products and writing the user manuals and documentation for that, as well as working within the open source community and doing all of the politicking required to write and help expand the documentation there. Okay, so your job is if I use your product and I want to get some background on how it works or try to get a question answered, you're producing that manual for me, the end user. Yeah, so I mean, to use the open source one um, or the open source product as an example, if you go to docs.crossplane.io, that's kind of my my house. Mm-hmm, um, okay. You know, it's, it's different because <laughs> it's um, open source. So, you know, it's more of a co-op than a house. Um <laughs> But uh, you know that that is the content for how to install it, how do I configure it, how do I turn on this knob, what are these knobs do? Um, all of that falls under my umbrella. So, what do you see as the value of documentation to a company and to its customers? Are, the, are those two different things? I, I have actually really strong feelings about this. Um, you know, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about my background in a minute. But I come from an engineering world um, and working with customers before I went into the documentation world. And to me, documentation is an extension of marketing. Um, and I think marketing is this big umbrella where, or a big spectrum where on one side, you can basically make things up and say like, this is the shiniest, most amazing, uh, what to doozle that's ever happened with 4.3 quadrillion teragov floppies. And on the other side, you have documentation where you have to be totally accurate. You have to be totally truthful. It's one of the first touch points with a customer. A lot of times you're not part of that process. You know, your sales team might talk to somebody and they're going to go look at your documentation to say, what is it? How does it work? Do I understand this? So that quality of documentation goes a long way. But also I see it as a way to build political capital or like positive feelings within your customers. Mm -hmm. Because if your product is hard to use and your documentation is great, you can get a lot of runway with a customer. If your product is easy to use or hard to use, but easy to use and your documentation is terrible, that just means the customer can't do what they want and they're going to be super frustrated and annoyed. Well, is, is that how you think of documentation as an extension of marketing? Because I see marketing as a pre-sales function and documentation as a post-sales function, but you're making it sound like it's, it's what helps sell the product. I, well, it's both. I mean, obviously most of the people are going to spend most of their time on documentation after they buy the product. Um, but I think almost everybody 
you know, just like you go to a website for a new product or a new piece of technology, you're going to be like, well, what is it? What does it do? Like I get cool, cool, cool. There's this white paper that talks about like the new secure multi-cloud automated future, but like, what is it you'd say you do here? And that's what's in the documentation, right? Like that, you know, that that is the real stuff that, you know, product marketing hasn't put their fingers on. And so to me, it is absolutely an extension of marketing in that sense, but it is absolutely critical that it does not become like a political tool of marketing, if that makes sense. Well, mm-hmm. you'd be mm-hmm. an advocate for companies having their docs be open, you know, out there on a read the docs or something like that. So that people that are interested in the product can dive in and just read the docs without having purchased it. Absolutely. And again, that's part of that marketing extension is, mm-hmm. um, you know, you want to meet a customer or a user where they are. And sometimes that is in documentation, right? Or part of that proof of concept or trial period is going to be through documentation. I also think that there is an underrepresented uh, or underleveraged opportunity to actually bring in more traditional marketing stuff in documentation. So to kind of keep it on brand with networking, you know, imagine I'm reading the EVPN configuration chapter, but it would be nice if there were, say, links about, say, the recent EVPN webinar or like this podcast about EVPN or, you know, hey, look at this white paper that's EVPN design guides. And so it's not the, what are the 10 commands that I need to run to turn the thing on? Cause I need that, but it's also going to say, I'm going to capture you where you are, you know, or find you where you are, which is the EVPN chapter and present to you non-documentation information that could also be helpful and useful. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's a fine line where customers trust you in documentation to some level, and you absolutely cannot violate that trust. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, good documentation does in some ways serve a marketing purpose in that the more you can reduce or eliminate a customer or potential customer friction or frustration through good documentation, you have and maybe create an ally, maybe created someone who's going to go out on social media and say, oh, I've got had this question, got it answered, or talk to other people, talk to their peers about it. So, you know, good documentation, helpful documentation can serve that function. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a big part of that is, um, in, in, in marketing, you talk a lot about the sales funnel. And so it's big at the top right. and now at the bottom. And, you know, you have these customers that are what they say, top of funnel. So they're just discovering you. They're just learning about you. You have middle of funnel. So they're, they've had some conversations They're Maybe they're playing with the product. Um, and then bottom of funnel are the people who, you know, they're, they're really seriously considering writing a check. And I think documentation has a role to play everywhere along that because it's a, self-service tool. So customers, like I said, can go and look at it. Your salespeople can use your documentation to answer questions and see like, Hey, uh, Mrs. Customer, look how you have this question. Well, here it is in the documentation to prove that we support it. And it's not just a nonsense claim. And you're also then highlighting the quality of your documentation when you do that. So you mentioned uh, the company you work for has both a commercial product and you work in the open source space. Are there differences between writing documentation for a commercial audience and an open source uh, environment? Yeah, but it's less the writing and more the process. Um, It's actually been a a very big, um, we'll call it a learning experience for me, you know, in the commercial side and in my last role um, where I was actually the the director of a documentation team, we kind of controlled our own fate. Right. So we got to write, you write, you save, you publish, like, you know, somebody will come along four weeks later and have a complaint. But at the end of the day, you, you kind of are benevolent dictators of your documentation. Now you don't own that process, right? The, the source owners, the maintainers of that product or project own it. Um, and so, you know, you come in with 5,000 words on doesn't matter what uh, they're going to be like, whoa, 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 what is this? Why are you doing it? Um, we have a lot of thoughts and opinions and I mean, it might be as much as like, Hey, the whole structure of how you're approaching this and building out your examples, we don't like to, uh, can you please wrap at 80 characters, even though this is text. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what goes into creating documentation? I assume this is probably a cross-functional activity. Do you talk to engineering? Do you talk to marketing? Do you talk to other business units in the organization? Uh, yeah. So. Um, part of this also has to do with where is documentation report up to in a company. Um, so some documentation groups are within say a product team, mm-hmm. some are within a marketing team, 
some are with an engineering team, um, you know, some are somewhere else entirely. Um, but that's one part of it. And the other part of it is the maturity of the company or product. So um, at my last role at Cumulus, we had a much more mature product and much more mature documentation base. So there wasn't a lot of, say, technical debt. And so our role was to basically track an upcoming release in those features and get those documented as fast as possible with as high quality as possible. Mm-hmm. And so you can't do anything really until code comes out. And then you write that documentation, you get it published. And then in the time between releases, you're expanding that coverage, building knowledge base articles, um, adding new features and functionality to your documentation. In my current role, you know, we have a very new and market product. And so there is a lot of technical debt. Um, and so it's a lot of just like, how do I turn it on? How do I, you know, make the green light turn red before we even get into these like advanced architectural conversations and documentation? Um, so you, you try to pick and prioritize for both roles. So with those new products, we would actually sit down with product marketing, I'm sorry, uh, product management and say, uh, Hey, what's coming out in this release? How important is it? And we would kind of break down like tier one, tier two, tier three features to determine the prioritization Tier one features absolutely have to be out before release, because this is what marketing is going to talk about. Mm-hmm. The tier four feature is like we added some new encryption capability to tack authentication or whatever. And so like that's important. We need to write it down. Only the customer who is pushing us for it cares and they're going to get, you know, the white glove treatment anyway. Um, so you prioritize that for the new product. You know, I end up working with our solutions architects and our pre-sales people and our post-sales people to try to understand where those points of friction are. Um, you know, what, what are the common issues? And then I turn around and work with engineering when I'm like, I don't understand how any of this works. As far as the writing goes, Pete, who's, is there a team of writers that are working on this? And, and if so, how does a piece of content get distributed amongst the team? Is is like one writer assigned, this is the thing you're going to do the documentation for, or does it kind of get routed through the team? So for me, I, I am a solo documentation writer. I'm I'm a team of one right now. Um, At Cumulus, we had a team of three and we basically broke it up um, per product. So kind of a big high level product had a, had a writer. And then usually we would have somebody that kind of floated between to pick up, you know, the burst of activity as a release came out that would help pitch in there. Every company and organization is going to be different. So some teams will do kind of a writer and reviewer and switch those roles. So if I'm going to write this, you're going to review it. And what you write, I'll review. Other teams, you know, they act as uh, four one-person teams, even though the reporting structure is four people on a team. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it has a lot to do with what is it that you're writing, who are you writing it for, and how interrelated are those products? Um, because there's also, you know, just as a networking, you know, you can call yourself a network engineer. Maybe you never touch the firewall. But there are other groups where, you know, you touch every device in the network. Um, it all kind of comes down to complexity and needs and kind of frequency of interaction. Now, do you work towards a common feel and, you know, vibe you get from every document? I'll throw Cisco out as an example here. Man, I don't care when it was written or what the product was that it's written about. The documentation all kind of feels the same. Mostly good, not always, but mostly, mostly it's a good vibe you get from reading uh, Cisco <laughs> Docs. But it's got this format, it's got this language that it, it, again, no matter where you go, in their massive documentation library, it's got to be millions of pages. It all kind of feels like you've landed in the same place and you might be reading by the same author. Um, as opposed to things like, I've written lots of documentation in my life for different companies I've been at. I have a whole different style. I tell a story and then there's examples and I try to have some humor in there that wouldn't really scale well to a large organization. So how do you, is the homogeneity of look and feel kind of a a goal, Pete, or not so much? It absolutely is. And I'm not very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses. Um, And this is actually in my current role one of the things that I was very honest about is I was like, look, I I am an A rate technologist and a B rate writer. If you want an A rate writer who can come in and give you like a unified uniform voice and feel and good vibes only across the, across the board. um, I I might not be the right fit for the role. 
Um, you know, and it's up to those people who are hiring to know whether or not that's what they need. Um, I'll say that some of the writers who have worked for me in the past, they come, they, they have a lot of experience as writers um, and they're extremely good at it. And, you know, they very respectfully and lovingly have torn apart some of the stuff that I've written and it, it makes it a lot better. And it's like anything else. You get better with practice, but it, it is a skill and it is not a skill that I am very good at today. So, yeah, that sort of leads to a question I had. Does your work go through a pipeline? Are there things like check-in, reviews? Do you get editing and input from other people? And as the writer, is this input welcome? All of the above. So for my last job, we could not pay people to give us reviews. Like, it felt so impossible. I mean, part of it's just everybody's busy, right? Sure. Um, and so you're like, hey post-sales consulting or engineering who wrote the feature, like, is this right? And you would get something like three weeks after release. And you're like, I, I have published and deleted and rewritten that thing four times. Okay. Thank, thanks for the feedback. <laughs> um, so that's one side. On the other side, like I said, in the open source world, I mean, it is definitely absolutely reviewed as part of that check-in. And so in both of these organizations, we work through Git. And so you write everything and you commit it to Git and then you basically issue a pull request to the documentation repository. And that is the review time. Um, from a personal side, um, you know, we use some tooling, obviously like spell checking and things like that. Um, but there's a great tool out there called Veil, uh, Veil.ai, um, that can do some English language linting. So it's like, hey, this is passive voice or, hey, uh -huh. don't, you know, don't use a word that um, might be uh, taken as offensive. Um, and you can build specific, say branding guidelines in there as well. Like always make sure you capitalize both the P and packet and the P and pushers, right. Um, that otherwise wouldn't be capitalized in a sentence. And so those help you, you know, do better. Yeah. In my old world of, uh, magazine technical writing, it was called the style guide. You had an in-house style guide where you, somebody had already hashed out things like, what do we initial cap? What do we mid cap? Uh, how do we spell this out? Do we, you know, uh, do other things with it to, to have those questions? So I'm assuming that, yes, you do have an in-house style guide or maybe you had to develop one. Yeah. So at, at Cumulus, you know, I, I came in well after our first technical writer who was great and he had developed a style guide and that was kind of our groundwork. Um, the big difference is whether or not that style guide is automated in its enforcement or manual mm -hmm. in its enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so Veil allows you to turn that style guide rules into basically a regex check. Um, mm. And then it will flag <laughs> if it says, oh, nope, you, you didn't do it right. And so that's super helpful um, here at um, Upbound where I am now and with our cross-plane open source stuff there's kind of a very loosey goosey style guide. So there's some stuff out of marketing that defines some of those brandings and terms. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no writing style guide to the kind of to the level or extent that you're talking about. Um, I wish it was there. And this comes back to like, um, where are my strengths? And as a writer, like I'm, I'm okay. And so my ability to build that style guide is it's coming along. It's slow, but it's coming along. Let's pause the podcast for a quick word from sponsor IT Pro TV. In my career, certification is how I kept improving my job situation and compensation, and IT Pro TV offers training to help you do the same. There are a couple of strategies that you can take with certs. You can skill up in an IT niche that you really like. For example, maybe networking is your thing. Okay, start with associate level certs, and then you go deeper with professional level. Another strategy is to widen your skill set. Maybe you've not done much with security, but you're interested. Great. Take some cybersecurity courses and start passing cert exams, which makes a lot of sense as there's a big industry need for security professionals right now. Whatever direction you want to go. IT Pro TV's rich library of training material has you covered, offering instruction from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training taught by hosts who go out of their way to make it interesting. The course library is well-organized, and you can watch whatever you want on whatever device you have handy whenever you like. So whether you're starting out or skilling up, you can learn IT, pass your certs, and make your first or next career move with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash 
PACKETPUSHERS and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS at checkout. And one more time, itpro.tv slash PACKETPUSHERS. Use that promo code PACKETPUSHERS at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now, let's return to today's episode. What's your take as far as style goes? What's your take on personality? Um, I've done a lot of writing for editors, including Drew, in fact. And some editors, not Drew, thankfully, would strip the very soul of my writing out. You made a joke, no, or you have personality, absolutely not. You know, and I read the piece and I can't even recognize it as my own writing. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes that's kind of appropriate. You want it to be uh, you know, fairly straightforward for whoever the reader is to understand what it is that you're talking about. And so maybe there's not as much license to be personal in, in the writing. Do you have a, a take on that, Pete? Yeah, I, I'm not dogmatic in that sense, but I think that it naturally happens, like how much voice to have naturally happens with empathy. Um, and what I mean by that is, if I'm going through and I'm writing a doc about how to configure X, Y, and Z, um, you kind of naturally, like there's just not a lot of space for for humor and personality. Like it's just, it's kind of dry to begin with. Um, and, and so it's hard to fit creativity in there that feels natural. The flip side of that is um, what I call like knowledge-based articles or like a design guide or a best practice guide or something like that in which it is much more um, subjective. And so you have some more space to be like, well, I'm producing an opinion. It is mine. There is a human behind this opinion. It is not just a list of facts. And I think it becomes a lot easier to put some of that voice and that style into those knowledge-based type articles or design guide type articles. So there's a little bit of a split. And I think a lot of it kind of happens naturally. Yeah, I think that makes sense because I'm assuming for, you know, a typical product manual, folks are just there to get their questions answered. And so you want to be as clear and clean and, and quick as possible. But there are other knowledge guides, design guides, whatever, blogs, where you can maybe inject a little bit more personality where it's welcome because it's, I guess, more informative and less about just tell me how to fix this. Yeah. And I mean, the reality is if you go full dark side on this, um, you know, the, the BGP chapter is going to have Clippy pop up and say, I see that you're configuring BGP. Would you like some help picking an ASN? And nobody wants that. So do you, as in the, the roles you've had, I, I'm guessing, let me start that again, three, two. So given that in some ways this is a collaborative process or that there are different, you know, sort of constituents you have to work with and, and uh, in some ways, please, are there, is there ever tension between say, marketing, product management, engineering, and yourself on what's the best way to, to say something, present something, uh, document something? Um, I, I'm sorry, I laugh because um, so much more than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> um, and so this, and this manifests in a couple of ways. I think the first way that it ends up manifesting and the most common one is somebody stumbles across something, some extremely large period of time in the future and they're like, oh my God, what is this? Mm-hmm. And you're like, it, it's the configuration. Like, we can't say we don't support that. And you're like, we, we, we don't support it. And they're like, we can't put that in the documentation. And you're like, buddy, it's, it's one, a true fact. And, and two, it's the, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube. The ship has sailed. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Um, most of the time, those are not really an issue. I mean, somebody gets upset, you talk through it. And you're like, okay, like this actually isn't the end of the world because the other part is documentation is so factual. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, again, it's not like product marketing where there is, I'm not saying product marketing makes stuff up, but there is space to make things up in product marketing. <laughs> um, and so you don't really have that space to be, um, to, to not be factual, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps a little bit. The other part of it is, um, documentation can become this um, kind of tool for political agendas like, oh, we're not going to document that or we don't care about that feature or, hey, we really need you to expand this thing because this is our this is what we think customers are going to use. And, um, you know, that that's where documentation management gets really important because like every just like every engineering project, like there's a trade off. I have X amount of time. If you want me to spend more time doing something, Here's the trade-off. 
Mm-hmm. If you want me to pull all this stuff out of documentation, let's make sure that support is understanding that this is going to make more tickets come up when customers are like, Hey, how do I do X or why isn't this thing in the, in the docs anymore? And so there is, there is some tension there um, for better or worse though. Um, I like to say nobody within an organization, like within a company, nobody cares about docs. And so you kind of get to like be Milton in the basement with your red stapler and just do your job, um, <laughs> which I actually I like about the role. Um, you know, as I, I used to tell my team, there's no such thing as a docs emergency. Like we built a system so the docs website doesn't really go down. Like you got to try pretty hard to break it. Um, and so otherwise like it can wait until Monday. And, and part of that's because, you know, we're in the basement. Right. I, although I do wonder, you mentioned, you know, uh, tech support. Do, do tech support people use uh, documentation that's written for customers or should they be using it? Is that a way to demonstrate the value of what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, this is, um, I'll tell you, like at Cisco TAC, being in support, like that was, is it supported or not? The, the documentation mm-hmm. was the referee for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the docs were wrong, which is a problem, but... Like if it's not in the docs, you can't say it's supported, right? Or if it's not supported and it says not supported in the docs, like there's the ruling, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can't really, it's hard to argue with that. So documentation is referenced every single day by support people because that's also going to tell them how to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, a good documentation c- group will try to close that loop and work proactively with support to say, where are you seeing cases? What are the things that need improvements? Where can I help you? Um, and even solicit some of those like more opinionated solution guide, design guide, troubleshooting guides out of the support organization. Um, documentation engineers, even myself, like with technical chops, um, we can build and write and construct things, but I don't know if what I'm doing is totally artificial and made up for that problem or it's actually really common or not. And that's going to be the support people and the people in the field that can tell me whether, like whether or not that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense in that you can work with tech support because they are on the front lines and identify areas where, yeah, we could be more clear about this, or maybe we should pull out something specifically and deliver to customers as a solution guide, because we're seeing these kind of calls over and over. That's I Mm -hmm. think an interesting interaction that that customers should be looking at. I mean, vendors should be looking at what's happening with tech support in their documentation. Yeah. And I think, you know, to talk about closing that loop, I think the other part of that is um, documentation tends to be, uh, I, I like to call them customer zero. They're like the zeroth person of the array uh-huh. to use the product. Uh-huh. Um, they're like, okay, new feature. Let's, let's turn on EVPN multi-homing. This is super hard and I hate it. And there are so many commands. And so they, I mean, you, it's too late. You got to write that down and do it, but they should then take that feedback and give it back to product and engineering to be like, this needs to be better. I might mm-hmm. not know the answer for what better is, but this is really hard and let me show you where I struggled, right? And so they get to kind of be a proxy for your users and your customers in that way. Let's pause the conversation for a message from the Internet Society. You can now get internet access from space thanks to low Earth orbit or LEO satellites in companies such as Starlink and OneWeb. And in 2023, more companies are planning to launch hundreds, even thousands more satellites to support broadband services, including Amazon's Project Kuiper and Canada's Telesat. As these systems are being launched, now is the opportunity for all of us to help shape conversations and ensure that these LEO systems help build a bigger, stronger internet accessible to everyone. These LEO systems have great promise to help address the digital divide and connect the unconnected. Kids can learn online, people can connect with others, play games, stream movies, schools and libraries can connect and bring the internet to many people. LEO systems can also support emergency responders and help get critical internet access during natural disasters. So there are big opportunities on the horizon, but also questions. Will these systems be affordable to the people who need them most? Will they have the capacity to support all the people who want access? Will they support the open standards and internet technologies we care about? What policy issues do they raise? How do we ensure competition? What about the environment? The Internet Society, a global nonprofit advocating for an open and trusted internet, dives into these questions in a new paper, Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access. You can download this paper for free and share it with others by going to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. One more time, you can get the paper Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access at internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. And now, back to the podcast. 
So one of the things you had mentioned earlier is when you're trying to create the documentation, it's obviously based on, you know, what's coming out in the next round of features. What sort of timelines do you tend to work with uh, in preparing documentation for, say, you know, a major feature release? Are we talking days, weeks, months ahead of time on, on building docs? Mm. Usually it's not even remotely enough time. And part of that is <laughs> um, even in organizations where um, they're doing, you know, ancient software development rituals where, you know, the, uh, the, the software developers come down from the top of the mountain and hand down the code to the QA for QA to then work on for, you know, six months before it goes out. Mm -hmm. um, you can't really do anything in your documentation until that. Like you might be able to build some structure um, that's been really successful for some people. That doesn't work for me. Um, you, you know, build kind of a skeletal outline of what your doc's going to be. But at the end of the day, it's how do I configure it? What are the commands? What are those outputs? And until that code exists and you can touch it and use it and it doesn't crash on you, or at least doesn't crash on you over and over again, um, you can't get started. And so a lot of times, you know, our documentation teams would only have maybe a day or two between like code release and code ship, um, you know, before we announce it. And so that's where, hey, all we have to do is get this one feature out in the docs because that's what's going to be, that's what this release is all about. Mm -hmm. um, everything else can come on days plus one, plus two, plus 10. Um, for really, really, really big releases, sometimes you have to have that negotiation and say, hey, look, marketing wants to talk about these four features. It's going to take us this amount of time to document them. Like, mm -hmm. can we push the release back a couple of days or a week? Um, and again, like documentation is a little fish in this pond. And so you have to present that argument and that trade-off and let kind of marketing and product make the decision because it might not make sense to delay a release because of documentation when there's a big, you know, Cisco Live's coming up and you want to be able to launch the product at Cisco Live, right? To hell with the docs. Like we'll do those in a couple of days. Right. <laughs> so Chuck Robbins is going to say it. So we'll, we'll, we'll not have the docs hold us up. Exactly. And so it, it depends um, as everything, um, but usually it's, it's a pretty slim window um, and it's, um, it's kind of on, on documentation management to um, protect their people and support them and make sure that they're not doing nothing for 30 days and then uh, working three days straight with no sleep um, right. right before the release. Have you ever, as a docs person, or heard of a docs person who is able to push back a release to just make sure the docs are lined up and, and ready? Uh, I mean, I've bought my team a, a day or two before. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times, and it, and usually it's not a surprise. Um, you know, they're like, "Oh, we found this super critical bug two days before release. We have to go back to ground to like rework it." And so, as a result, documentation has never even seen that feature that was super broken and also happens to be important and complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if you're going to push back two days on what is like already an arbitrary date, um, you know, you're not going to get a lot of pushback on that probably. Um, so it, it can be successful. Um, or like I said, you, you make it a negotiation, like, Hey, we can do this one thing in a rush job and this is the 10% we can cover in it. So there's something um, just, is that okay with you? Right. That's the trade-off you're going to get. Um, and, and usually marketing and product understanding. Another thing I'm curious about is since we're talking about, you know, features and revisions and stuff is, uh, and, you know, this protocol wasn't supported. Now it is. Uh, how, it, it sounds like it could be really hard and kind of a challenge to go back and then upgrade docs as, you know, legacy things get thrown into for, or you expand the, you know, the, the protocol or the operating system, or whatever that you can now run on. How do you keep track of, Oh, we didn't do this before, but we do it now. We need to go back and and add that. There's a couple of different approaches. Usually you can tie a doc to a software release. Mm -hmm. You know, in 14.1, here's the set of things. And in 14.2, here's the set of things. You know, you're copying and pasting the old one and then adding more stuff to it. Okay. Um, and so that documentation revision process is usually part of how you do that. Um, historically, that's always been that. The way we've done it in, in my companies is... You know, the 1.2 doc is a copy and paste of the 1.1 doc. Um, you put a variable in there to make sure the the version number updates automatically, and then you add the new stuff. Um, and part of that is, um, you know, 
for documentation teams that have a lot of autonomy is how do you structure that information? How do you present that data? And so we would always build a, a what we call the what's new page. And it was literally the list of features and functions and changes and new defaults and stuff mm-hmm. that was removed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is explicitly, some people might call this the release notes. Um, you could call it that. There's, I think there's a little bit more nuance there with the release notes, but, um, and then that was actually the one page that we forced product and marketing to sign off on mm-hmm. before we did anything because we're like this, if this is wrong, you need to tell me right now because I'm not the one that's going to deal with the customer's calling, mm-hmm. right? Like you're going to be the one in the pitch, in the pitch meeting, the sales meeting and having the customer say, but your documentation says you support it. So product and marketing, like you make sure that this is accurate based on what we've been told, which is usually out of date information because everybody forgets about documentation. Um, and then once they sign off on it, you know, that kind of becomes our landing spot for um, what, what has changed in that doc. So Pete, when you do your writing, who is the audience? Who's the, who's the person sitting there reading the documentation in your mind? Because when I write stuff, I'm always thinking about that human. And it's typically someone who is sort of like me. They're an engineer. They got problems to solve. They want to read from that perspective. But uh, I, I don't know that that's always the right way to write things, I guess. So what, what's your take on audience? I write for me. And the me is a person who understands technology is slightly impatient, gets really <laughs> frustrated and angry at, and screams a lot at things that don't work um, and hates an assumption. Um, and so I, I kind of write for that, like, I'm going to have to read this, you know, future me is going to have to read this after I've forgotten how all of this works. Uh-huh. So let's make sure that we spell that out. Let's make sure that uh, we don't assume something is well known and well understood. Um, you know, and you, it, that can be really hard. Um, you know, I don't want to spell out border gateway protocol every time I say BGP. But at the same time, I don't want to th- want you to assume that, um, you know, you, you know what a split horizon is, right? That mm-hmm. might not be intuitive. And what that line is, is really, really hard to draw and very fuzzy. Um, <sighs> It, 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 it is hard. I know I've written uh, like some Python code that does something and I had to do a bunch of homework to figure out how to write a sentence or write a statement within that code to do a thing. And so I'll leave documentation for myself because I'm not going to remember, you know, in six months what it was and how, why I wrote it that way and why the brackets and the braces had to be just there. Uh, so I'll write comments for myself, you know, for that. You know, at the same time, it's like you said, some stuff is so fundamental. You don't right. You don't want to write border gateway protocol every time, um, and you can't go all the way back to fundamentals every time you're writing something. So I, I agree with you. It is hard to know where to to draw the line, but you do have to draw the line. Yeah, and I think part of that is also related again to product maturity and you know how much existing collateral is there. And so if you are say Cisco documentation there is something somewhere that explains literally everything that's ever happened in networking. And so <laughs> you can make a bunch more assumptions because you can just link out to those assumptions. You're like, you don't know what this is. Here you go. For what I'm doing now, for example, it's very focused on Kubernetes. It's very focused on cloud. Um, it's very focused on different cloud providers. And as somebody who came in basically not knowing anything about Kubernetes or cloud, I see something talking about AWS. I am, and I'm like, you are what? No, like I am like AWS. I am. You're like, yeah, yeah. You are what? No, like, no, no. Identity (laughs) access management. I am. I'm like, oh, okay. Got it. (laughs) Like, let me put a link to AWS. I am when I say that. So if you know what it is, you don't care. Um, And if you don't, you're doing who's on first all afternoon. (laughs) Exactly. And so this is actually um, something in my, in my current role where I'm like, I am just dumb enough to be really good at doing the documentation here because I don't know how any of this works. So I have to write it down for me because our customers don't know how it works either. And there's actually a thing, um, it's called the curse of knowledge, um, where when you know something, you tend to assume other people know that thing too. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if I'm gonna tap a song out on my fingers on the desk, you think somebody else knows that song that you're tapping out, but the reality is nobody has any idea what you're doing. You're tapping and being annoying. And so that same thing happens. If you look at most documentation that you think is bad, 
they're probably suffering from curse of knowledge where they're assuming you know something, you know what a crypto cert is, or you know the difference between IPGP and EPGP or whatever. And they're, you're like, I don't understand why this is the way it is. What, what I Please be dumber. Talk to me like an idiot for two seconds so I can understand Explain what you're like about. I'm five. Yeah. Yeah. I'm exactly. thinking of the Great British Baking Show and one of the challenges where the instructions are just like, make a shoe pastry. And if you've never made a shoe pastry, you're like, okay, what is that? What do I do? Do I, is this flour? Is this eggs? What am I doing? Yeah. The, there's the classic meme of like, how to draw an owl. Step one, draw two circles. Step two, draw the rest of the owl. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I'm curious, documentation, you know, we're, we're living now in an age where so much content is available as videos, as slide presentations, and even their social media where people will just ask their peers a question and maybe get an answer. Do people read docs anymore or is there a role for other mediums in product documentation? Yes and yes. And so one reassuring singular data point, um, you know, at my, at my current job, one of the biggest complaints, like why I have a job from our customers was the documentation. Like the documentation's confusing and hard to follow. Like we like hear that in every customer meeting. You're like, cool, you're reading the docs. Great, this is good to know. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, I think that um, everybody has different learning styles. Everybody's looking for different information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, as somebody who is in a totally new space and a new field, I find myself flipping between YouTube videos on 2X not because I want all the information, but because there's some nugget buried deep in this video and I don't care about most of the video. Um, I I tend to hate video. Some people love audio. Some people love to read. I prefer reading. Um, And so you kind of have to meet people where they are, where they want to be with that different content. And this comes back to, you know, I think there's a place to put that marketing content within, you know, link to it or something within the documentation. Um, I think that there is a place to, say, think of a feature. I used to do this a lot in technical marketing because I had both tech marketing and documentation reporting to me is, look, we're coming out with this new feature. How do we build a document, build a little training lab, build a white paper, build a webinar, you know, build a blog post. And so you can draw this kind of thread through five, six different medias and, and presentations and uh, deliverables that might cross different teams but you can kind of link it all together some way. And so I think there's a lot of value in that. Absolutely. Uh, And speaking of which, very quickly, for folks who may not know, uh, to give you a sense of Pete's technical chops, uh, on the Packet Pushers YouTube channel, uh, we did an event, a live stream event several years ago where one of the presenters was Pete and he did a session on how ASICs work for network engineers. And that's, I think, our most viewed video uh, on YouTube. So... Um, and that ties into my next question. You have come from more hands-on technical roles. What attracted you to being a, a docs person? I worked with some great documentation writers. So I, I totally and completely stumbled into the role. Um, so I was, you know, it was my background. Um, you know, I have a CCIE, I have a CCDE. I was in Cisco Tech. I went to Cumulus Networks. I was an SE. I did technical marketing. I ended up running the technical marketing team. Um, and rolling up into marketing. Um, and so I'm doing my TME thing, making slides, making white papers, occasionally talking to the docs folks, um, you know, just cause they're friendly and I'm being friendly. And I, you know, I read the docs and try to be helpful. And, uh, we needed a new manager for the documentation team and the marketing person who is a very kind of, um, she, she's an amazing person and was a fantastic boss, but she comes from a very marketing background like she's thinking about leads and like ad campaigns and revenue and pipeline and she's like i don't i don't know what to do with documentation and so she's like kind of looked around and she's like pete uh you're a manager and you're technical congratulations you now own the documentation <laughs> team uh and i was kind of the same way i was like okay cool let's figure this out um and as i started working with them and and seeing some other struggles and understanding you know how they have all these different touch points in the organization i was like oh my god this is, this is a gold mine. Like we have the ability to hit users early. We get to understand the product deeply. Um, you know, we get to kind of define what is and isn't uh, worth talking about. Um, you know, we get to think about ways to enhance the, the look, the feel, the interaction of our documentation. Um, and one thing I was super proud about when we were at Cumulus is 
um, Cumulus has always had this simulation platform thing. You like log in and we give you some virtual consoles to go run a lab. Um, and I was like, wait a second, why don't, why don't we just do the docs in this, right? I gave you this big configuration example. Give me, give me one of those config, give me one of those console windows to see your document in action. I want to see the associated show command for that configuration you just showed me, right? What are the IP addresses on the loopback interface? Cause it's not really clear to me. Like that's amazing, right? That's documentation and it's enhancing how users do it. And it totally changes how a customer perceives the product. And then I started thinking about like, well, how do we then say, bring those people into our, like I said, that sales funnel and start to identify them, right? And so documentation's open, anybody can go to it. You can block all the cookies, be anonymous, that's fine. But then I can send you off to some, what we call a gated asset. Like you wanna download our free ebook? Well, all I need is your email address. Right. And so now I can say, look, documentation, I only sent you this person, but that person then went on to buy some stuff. Look at that documentation is actually making you money. Um, and so that, that combination of deep technical and like total cross business stuff made it really interesting to me. And now in my new role, um, you know, going to a place that's very foreign, Kubernetes and cloud, I was like, well, I can either go jump into like an SRE role and basically get beat up every minute of every day as I feel totally clueless trying to put out fires. Or I can take a lot more of a kind of tortoise slow and steady approach to take a piece of technology, totally digest it and chew through it and understand it and write it down and then move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And then, you know, hopefully at the end of this journey of some time, I turn around, I look back and say, wow, I'm, I'm an expert at this thing because I just wrote all the docs and all the features. That's, that's my hope. We'll, we'll see if I get there, but that's really how that evolution happened. I'm curious. I think there may be a perception uh, in tech that if you aren't, you know, sort of deep in the guts of a routing protocol or your fingers aren't bloody from uh, racking switches that you're not really technical. Is that an attitude you've ever had to deal with? Like maybe the first time you walk into an engineering meeting or whatever? I have not had that uh, just because I started super technical mm -hmm. um, and, and was deep in the guts of the routing protocol. But I can tell you, um, I have absolutely seen this firsthand with my um, documentation writers that have worked for me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's doubly so, um, based on gender, unfortunately, right. you know, it's, it's so much harder for, for women in our industry to be seen as technical by default. And so that's always been a challenge. And, um, I think that it also ends up causing a lot of folks to, um, you know, double down on their own imposter syndrome, um, <laughs> to say, well, I mean, they don't think I'm technical. I must not be technical. Mm -hmm. Um, and so as a, as a manager of a documentation team, it was my job to like reassure them. You're like, no, you, you know, more of this than most of the people in this company. Like the only reason you're not an SE is because you don't want to go and travel around to do sales pitches, but mm -hmm. you absolutely know as much as if not more than our SEs, because you're the one configuring this stuff every single day. You know, you can look back and say like, look how many bugs our doc peoples have found like actual software defects because they're the ones configuring it and finding that and finding the problems. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely there. Um, it's a lot more pervasive than it should be. Um, again, I think doubly so for uh, women in our industry. Um, but the reality is, I mean, documentation people are probably the third most hands-on group of people in the company with the product behind post sales and technical support. So is this a job you would recommend to someone who's, you know, doing day-to-day -day work as a network engineer, developer, SRE, whatever? Short answer is yes. The long answer is it really depends on where. Because um, again, some places like you're just, you're just copy editing, right? Mm -hmm. um, you might put it in to like fact check that that output looks like that. Um, but for me, I mean, I, I absolutely could not do this job without an engineering background because there's no, like the getting started guide kind of is like step one, install Kubernetes, step two, connect it to AWS. You're like, I don't know how to do either of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, I have to have the engineering know-how to be able to walk through those components and understand them. And like, I have to read all of the AWS documentation before I can read the Kubernetes documentation so that I can then write my documentation for my product. Um, 
And so for me, it's, it's fantastic. Um, you know, and so there are very engineering focused roles. Um, but it also has to do with what do you enjoy, right? I sit at home. Uh, I have very few meetings. I kind of like, uh, poke around in the lab and write stuff all day. Other people like that, the idea of sitting and writing makes them want to go crazy. Right. Uh, and so you, you have to be able to sit there and have that discipline as well. That makes sense. Okay. Last question then. I, I think effective written communication can be helpful, even if writing isn't your primary responsibility. Any tips for engineers and technical people who uh, are a little nervous around writing on how to write better? Do it. Like it's, um, it's like playing an instrument. Like the first time you, you strum a guitar or play a piano it's gonna it's gonna sound like trash um and that first blog post is gonna be awful um and you just gotta do it and you gotta do it more and more and more and more and keep doing it um i think that you can also leverage some of the tools out there um you know a lot of folks use the grammarly plugin right. um there's a thing called hemingway app which i think is fantastic i use a lot to help shame me into writing better um I still can't define what passive voice is, but I'm getting a lot better at figuring out how to rewrite it. You know uh, when you say it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, it stopped yelling at me that this is passive voice. I don't really know what I did right, but uh, cool. I fixed the problem. Um, you know, and again, Veil uh, is a great tool. We can put some links in the notes. Um, so, you know, leverage those tools to help you write better. But I mean, just do it a lot over and over again. Just keep writing. Yeah, I agree. I would also say if you know someone that you trust and respect and they're willing to spend a little time to read a draft, get that feedback as well, because it'd help you understand whether your points are actually landing. Well, Pete, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having this conversation. Uh, where can folks find you online? Do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter while it still lasts uh, at Pete, C-C-D-E. Um, uh, that's pretty much where I spend most of my time talking trash. And, uh, I'm actually, I think we're going to be hiring a documentation engineer to work with me in the near future. So, uh, if you're, if you're in the market or looking for something, hit me up. I will tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly, because I only want to work with people who know what they're getting into. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, Pete, uh, CCDE on Twitter. We'll have that link in the show notes and, uh, you've been on the packet pusher before, so we'll throw, uh, other shows where you've been in here, uh, in there as well. Uh, once again, Pete, thank you for joining us. And thanks to you, uh, the listener for listening. If you like this episode, there are many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. Check out our weekly uh, human infrastructure newsletter. It's got links to interesting blogs. It's got thoughts and observations from the packet pushers, and it's got a few laughs. You can uh, sign up for free at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. You can find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.